0: He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to, to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the word of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains in him on him." May God reveal light and life through his word by his spirit so that we may believe and have eternal life. You may be seated.
1: National Public Radio had an interview back in 2009 with a man named Eric Reese. It was on the show Fresh Air with host Terry Gross. And Eric Reese had written a book called An American Gospel. And this book chronicled his journey from being the son of a pastor, his grandfather a pastor, his father a pastor, and when his father was 33, his father committed suicide, and this began a journey for Eric Reese to try to figure out what's going on with this faith, what about life, what, what, what's happening here, and he during this interview with, with, with Terry Gross, he He's asked to read from his book and Terry Gross is pointing out that on a page of this book he had talked about how he had found his father's bible and found the bookmark and opened it up to Matthew chapter 10 and in the book it reports that he wrote he he read from Matthew chapter 10 and he read verses 34 through 39 and in that passage, there is some verses about how if we love father or mother more than Jesus, we're not worthy of Him. And if we love son or daughter more than Jesus, we're not worthy of Him. And if we don't give up up our lives, we're not worthy of Jesus. And after this quote, Reese then records his reaction. Who is the egomaniac speaking these words? And so Terry Gross asks him to, takes him to that passage and and, and then asks him, would you elaborate on this reaction? And Reese replied, well, it just struck me, who is this person speaking 2,000 years ago, a complete historical stranger saying that we should love him and who we really are incapable emotionally of loving more so than we should love our own fathers and our own sons? It just seemed like an incredibly egomaniacal kind of claim to make. Well, what's an egomaniac? Well, it's someone who's totally selfishly involved with himself, self-absorbed, self-centered. But Eric Reese is not alone in making a claim like this. Oprah Winfrey said something very similar when she found out that the Bible says that God is a jealous God about wanting no one to worship anybody but, but himself. And Oprah Winfrey said, no, God's a loving God. He's not jealous. Many other people have, made, have, have said things like this, that God must be a tyrant if he's asking us to put all aside and worship only him. If someone demands that we worship them, we think of them as a bully, an egomaniac, a tyrant? So was Jesus just a, a bully, totally self-absorbed? Was he a, a guy in an ego trip? Well, the passage that we read today addresses questions like this by teaching us that not only does it make sense to focus on Jesus above ourselves, but in fact, this is the source of true joy. It's a very unnatural message. So the big idea today is that true joy comes from pointing the spotlight away from ourselves, pointing it toward Jesus, the Son of God who gives eternal life. True joy comes from pointing the spotlight away from ourselves, pointing it toward Jesus, the Son of God who gives eternal life. Last week, Malachi walked us through John 16 through 21 and this was the aftermath to the conversation with Nicodemus where John begins to explain kind of what happened with Nicodemus and brings out some principles that Jesus had been trying to teach him. Now Nicodemus had seemed baffled by what Jesus had been telling him and he wasn't sure what to make of Jesus. In this passage, we see a stark contrast to Nicodemus. John the Baptist was not unsure about Jesus. In fact, he had devoted his whole life to pointing people to Jesus. Now, verse 30 is a pivot verse in this passage. Verse 30 says, He must increase, but I must decrease. And this verse itself helps us to highlight two main parts of this passage that we just read. The first part is a focus on John, why he must decrease. That's verses 20 through 30. And then the second part is a focus on Jesus, why he must increase. So the first focus that we see in this passage is that John the Baptist must decrease into insignificance, but his joy is full. So that's the first major section of this passage, verses 22 through 30. John must must decrease, but he's going to have joy as a result. So the background is set up in verses 23 through 24. So we read that Jesus had come to the countryside. Now he'd been in Jerusalem and he says that he came to the countryside. Literally just the land but, but we understand the difference between the city and the country. Actually in Phoenix it's the city in the desert but back east it's the city in the country. So he's out on the countryside and this just means that he's, he's away from the cities not a lot of people around and, and people are coming to him and they're getting baptized. Now this is not the same as Christian baptism that occurred after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So that baptism was looking back at what Jesus had accomplished on the cross. This baptism was a baptism that was looking ahead to what Jesus was going to do. It's very similar to John's baptism, a baptism of repentance, looking ahead to Jesus. Now, we learned that Jesus was not himself baptizing. We'll see that next week in, in uh, John 4 when Malachi covers that passage. It says that he was not baptizing, his disciples were. But what this is saying is that he was overseeing the baptism. We also learned that John was baptizing. In verse 23, that he was in a different place. He was up in Samaria, and he was baptizing in a place where there was a lot of water. Anon means springs. And so he was in a place where there's a lot of water. And so he's also continuing his ministry. And then in verse 25 and 26, some questions arise about the roles of John and Jesus. Some comparisons are being made between them. So it says in verse 25 that a dispute arose about purification. We're not sure what the dispute was about. It doesn't really matter all that much. But this leads, then, to John's disciples reporting that Jesus is baptizing more people than you are. Now, John's ministry had been extremely successful. I mean, he was the most famous person, really, in in all of Israel. Everybody was coming to him, it said. All Judea was coming out to him to be baptized, probably thousands of people, and he was teaching the Word of God. Luke reports that the the Word of God came to him in the wilderness. The very first couple of verses of Luke chapter 3. So he he was teaching the Word of God. He was an effective minister. But his disciples come to him and they say, you're trending down, John. In today's language, that would be you were dropping a video, you were getting a million viewers, now you're getting 100,000. Now you're getting 50,000. Last week you only had 20,000. Jesus, he's going viral. He's got a million viewers. He's got 5 million viewers. What's happening? John's followers were jealous for John. Now, it's good to be loyal. They were loyal to John. They loved John. John had changed their lives. Some of these people had left their lives previous lives to follow John, so they're loyal to him. Notice that there's a slight exaggeration in what they say. They say, all are going to him. Well, That wasn't exactly true. We learned in verse 23 that some people were still coming to John, but in verse 26, He's baptizing and all are going to him. Now that might have been the voice of jealousy, Is exaggerating a little bit. Somebody pointed out that they don't even mention Jesus' name. That one that you bore witness to, maybe that was a voice of jealousy, maybe that's just something that, that they were saying, it wasn't maybe afraid to say the name of Jesus, but they were jealous for John. Now, John's answer is surprising because John is full of joy at what's happening. So we learn in verses 27 through 29 that John is rejoicing that Jesus is taking over. John says God is in control. Look what he says in verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it has been given to him from heaven. God is in control. John's saying, God gave me my ministry. He's responsible for its success, its size, when it starts to decline, when it stops. God's in control of that. He gave it to me. John understood the principle from Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7. It says, for not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. John also understood that ministry is a gift. It is a mercy. 2 Corinthians 4.1 says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Ministry comes by the mercy of God. John understood that. We don't receive anything unless it's been given to us by God. So what does that mean for me? I just need to keep doing what God is asking me to do. The outcome is up to Him. Think about Jeremiah. Jeremiah ministered for decades. He had, what, maybe five, ten people that ever believed in him? He was thrown in jail. He was dumped in a pit that had mud at the bottom of it. He was mocked year after year after year. He went out to buy a field at God's direction. He came back. They said, you're deserting to the Chaldeans. You're a traitor. But he stayed faithful because he understood this principle that God's in control of our ministry. John understood this. What happens when we see other people succeeding when we're not? Another church is doing really well and ours seems to be not doing well at all. How do we feel about that? Do we envy them? Do we say, well, our preacher is just as talented as that guy? We've been here longer. What about when somebody gets the preference at work? I've got more experience. Besides, he's not a people person. What comes into our heads? It's often criticism, right? A little over 10 years ago, I was in seminary in, in, in Kentucky. And a friend of mine, who was also in seminary there, he's actually a year or two behind me, got offered a position at a seminary in the Northwest. My immediate reaction was not joy. In fact, the first thing that came out of my mouth was a criticism of this dear brother, friend of mine. A criticism. This is not my finest moment. In fact, I had to go later on and ask for for his forgiveness. And he's a great guy. He's written a book that we use at at, at, at at GCU Seminary. Now, if that hadn't worked out the way it had, I wouldn't have come to Arizona and I would not have met all you wonderful people. Can I get an aw? Thank you, thank you. I feel like that will at least get me one dinner invitation from somebody. So how do we arm ourselves so that jealousy does not take hold of us when we see other people succeeding when we're not? Well, this truth that all I have is a gift from God is an antidote to envy. It's an antidote to bitterness over somebody else succeeding when I'm not. We need to settle this truth in our hearts. A man can receive nothing unless it's given to him from heaven. Now in verse 28, John says that he's always been pointing to Jesus. So first he says, only God gives ministry. Then he says, look guys, I've always been telling you that I'm not the Christ, that Jesus is the one they be looking to. So back in, in verse, chapter 1, verse 20, he says, I am not the Christ. Verse 28 here in John 3, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. Back in chapter 1, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John one twenty nine, In verse John one thirty three, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I baptize with water. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then in, in John 1.34, I've seen and bear witness that this is the Son of God. John could not have been clearer that he was not the one to pay attention to, that it was this one that was coming, the Christ, Jesus. So then in verse 29, John says that he rejoices at the coming of Christ. and He gives this illustration. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands there and hears his voice, he rejoices. Well, the friend here is what we call the best man. The best man at the wedding is the one who takes care of all sorts of details. Now, today, our best man doesn't do all that much. He sort of stands there and holds the ring. But in those days, the best man was like the wedding coordinator. He took care of all the details, made sure that the food was going to be set up. He made sure that the bride got there made sure that the groom, that all the details were taken care of. But even with all those extended responsibilities, the focus was not on the best man. The focus was on the bride and the bridegroom. Actually, in weddings today, it's mostly on the bride. But back then, the bride and the bridegroom, the bridegroom and the bride were the ones that the spotlight was on. Not on the best man, and so in a wedding today, when the couple comes out and they throw the rice—or I guess they don't do that anymore—the bird seed, or blow bubbles, at the couple, and then they get into the car and they take off, and the streamers are there, and the cans or whatever is going on with that with a car. All the attention is on them. The best man is back there on the steps. Nobody's paying attention to him. But what's his attitude? He rejoices that the job is done, that he got his job completed, the couple has been married, and they're on their way. He rejoices. John says, this therefore, the end of verse 29, therefore this joy of mine is now complete. He's been waiting for this to happen. He's been waiting for his ministry to start to decline so that Jesus could increase. I was famous and successful once. I had thousands of people come to me. I was the man that everybody wanted to come and see and talk to and ask questions of. And now that's all fading. And guess what? I'm full of joy. This is not normal. Normal. I heard John Piper refer to this as crazy joy. Crazy joy. I like that phrase. This is unexplainable crazy joy that John has. He's getting set on the side. In fact, in a few months, he's going to be put in prison. And then sometime after that, he's going to have his head cut off because of the dance of the daughter of Herod's wife. Talk about having his ministry cut off. No pun intended. This is not normal. Do we have any biblical examples of this? Well, let's take a look at Paul's example. Philippians 1.15. Paul is in prison in Rome. And he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. So There were people that were actually preaching the gospel to try to add affliction and pain to Paul. Yeah, he's in prison because God doesn't really care about him anymore. And he wasn't all that good of a preacher anyway. You guys need to come to me. I'm the real deal. And what does Paul say? These people are slandering him. And what's his reaction? I rejoice that Christ is increasing, that Christ is being proclaimed. And that brings us to verse 30, the pivot verse again. He must increase and I must decrease. Note the operative word must. He must increase and I must decrease. A man can receive nothing except it's been given to him by God. God's in control. So this is what must happen. He must increase, I must decrease. This verse is on Kevin Schneider's volume pedal. If you've ever seen his volume pedal, it says he must increase, I must decrease. And I mentioned that once and then Das um, said, well, that's my life verse. And, of course, the obvious application of that is that electric guitar players need to turn their volume down. <laughs> no, this is the first and important, it's a great life verse. John 3.30, it's only seven words. He must increase, but I must decrease. So I'm hoping that, that you will all memorize that verse. If I come up to you in a week and, and point to you, say, John 3.30, I hope that you will be able to recite that verse. Everybody in the front rows here, young people? Okay, John 3.30. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the first and most important principle of Christian ministry. We need to make Jesus big and let ourselves be small in comparison and let God take care of the rest. Now, it may not be a high-profile ministry. On Wednesday nights, Eric and his crew, they are serving meals to everybody that comes comes in. i got to tell you, that's a happy crew. If you've been there on on Wednesday nights, those guys are joyful. It doesn't have to be high-profile to be joyful. What happens if the ministry assigned to you is hard sometimes? What if your ministry is taking care of small children. And you're thinking, I cannot get more tired than this. And then at 2 in the morning, your 3-year-old throws up all over the bedclothes and you say, I was wrong, I can get more tired. (laughs) That's ministry, it's hard. Can we find joy in it? Yeah. Yeah. What if the ministry assigned to you is not exactly the one that you want? Well, it's okay to to aspire to do other things. Maybe you'd like to teach. Well, start learning the Bible. Start working with somebody to help you get the skills that you need, get some opportunities. But you can find joy today in the ministry that you have today. You don't have to wait till the ministry that you really want comes along. You can find joy today. So as we move on to verses 31 to 36, there's some uncertainty about whether John is the one, or John the Baptist is, is, is the one speaking, or whether it's John now writing his reflection. So did John end at verse 30, or does he, is he still talking? I think just like what happened in verses 16 to 21, where John writes a reflection. I think John is now reflecting on what John the Baptist has said to his disciples. So now John the Apostle, not John the Baptist, John the Apostle, the writer of the Gospel, is telling us more about Jesus. So in part he's answering the question, why must Jesus increase? We've, We've looked at the the John side of the equation, John the Baptist, he must decrease. Now we need to move to the Jesus side of the equation, which is why Jesus must increase. And John's going to give us some reasons here why Jesus must increase. Now, please bear with me here. This is a dense passage. It's one of the most concentrated set of truths about Jesus Christ that you're going to find in the Bible. And it's a little bit hard to get through, but it's worth it because John is wanting us to learn who Jesus is, both in our heads and our hearts, so that we can make Him increase and find crazy joy by doing it. So we need to know who this Jesus is if we're going to increase Him. So let's go through these verses. I'm going to hit the highlights. I'm not going to go into detail. We could probably spend two sermons just on these verses. So Jesus must increase, second focus here, Jesus must increase, because he is the Son of God who gives eternal life. That was the the, the last verses here, six verses, 31 through 36. Jesus must increase because he is the Son of God who gives eternal life. So we learn in verse 31 that Jesus is from above and not from the earth. Why is that interesting? Well, Jesus comes from above. He's above all. The one who comes from the earth, like John the Baptist... He speaks from the earth. He's limited. But Jesus, he comes from heaven. He's above all. So John the Baptist is a created being. Jesus is the creator of all beings. So already we're seeing a a, a distinction here. Why should Jesus increase? Verses 32 and 33 say that Jesus speaks out what he has seen and heard in heaven. So verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard and yet no one receives his testimony. And then in verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. So there's a little bit of a side there that there's people that don't receive this testimony. And that's going to kind of come back at the end, the last verse. We also got an an inkling of that back in John chapter, back in chapter uh, 3, verse 11, which I think it was two weeks ago, when Jesus said, we testify about things that we've seen and heard, but you people don't receive our testimony. So here's John the Apostle now echoing what Jesus said. And then in verse 33, the ones who receive his testimony, they set, he sets his seal to this that God is true. Now, it's a little bit hard to unpack this, but I think... What John is saying is that just like John the Baptist, those who trust in Jesus recognize that Jesus is speaking God's truth. Then in verse 34 we learn that the Father sent Jesus, that the Son speaks, and that the Spirit empowers So we've got the Trinity here in in glorious light. The Father sent Jesus, Jesus the Son speaks, and the Holy Spirit empowers the Son for ministry. Now we're talking about Jesus in his earthly ministry. Verse 34, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Notice how all the members of the Trinity are working together. The Father sent the Son, the Son speaks the word, the Spirit empowers the Son. Now we know that when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit came and dwelt up on him, uh, came down like a dove and dwelt upon him. And John mentions this back in John, uh, John the Apostle, uh, not John the Baptist, John the Apostle. i got to figure out who I'm talking about here. John the Apostle writes about this back in chapter 1 and he said i saw the spirit descend upon him like a dove and john is now saying here that that the holy spirit came upon jesus without limit now john the baptist had the spirit of god but it was given to him for a season it was limited but unlike john the baptist and any other prophet even the greatest of all the prophets jesus had all of God the Spirit available to him. How much greater is he? Notice this picture that John is making about Jesus. Jesus is increasing and increasing. He's getting greater and greater. John the Baptist was a great man, but he was like a bright star. Jesus said he was like a shining and burning light. What happens to the brightest star when the sun starts to come up. It goes away. You can't see it anymore. Jesus was like the coming of the sun and he just eclipsed all the other people. Then we learn in verse 35 that through God's love, the sun has all authority. Hang with me now. It's starting to get a little intense, but we've only got two verses to go. The Father loves the Son, verse 35, and has given all things into His hand. So all the focus has been placed on Jesus. And what we're seeing in this passage is that all the focus has been placed on Jesus for our salvation. Now why mention here that the Father loves the Son? Because everything in God God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit is founded upon love. God's love can't be contained. Look at John 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. How can we have joy even when Things don't seem to be going for us, well, for us. How can we have joy when somebody else is succeeding and I'm not? In fact, maybe I'm getting less and less successful. Maybe I'm getting cut off. How can I have joy when that happens? There's only one way that we can rejoice when we decrease, but Jesus increases. And that's when we understand how much God loves us. God loves you. Right-hand side, middle section, middle section, left side. God loves you. In love, the Father sent the Son. In love, Jesus willingly went to the cross for us. In love, the Holy Spirit fills our hearts with the love of Christ. Romans 5, 5. We can't do it without the love of Christ. And realizing that, realizing how much God loves us is the way that we can have joy even when things aren't going well for us. Finally, verse 36, because Jesus has been been given all authority, He's the source of eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There's two options here. Believe the Son or disobey. Reject the Son. If you reject God's Son after God has given this offer of eternal life, you are still under God's wrath about sin. Now, wait a minute. I thought you said God loves the world. Yes, He does love the world. And as a result, He gave His Son to pay for our sins. We have a sin problem. God is just and our sin separates us from Him. Now, sin is not just this bad thing that I do here or there. Sin is a settled attitude of my heart that's in rebellion against God. Sin says, I will not submit to God. If we don't take advantage of the solution that God has offered, we are still under his just anger against our sin. But those who do come to Jesus will find not only forgiveness, but they'll find fullness of joy, crazy joy. So here's an important question I'm going to leave you with. What will you do with the Son of God? Is Jesus just some guy that lived and taught moral lessons? Was he an egomaniac who demands worship but doesn't deserve it? Is he a bully or a tyrant? Or is he the Son of God, the one who created all things, the one who created us? Who knows every thought in our minds, who wants us to turn to Him and trust Him and find forgiveness? What will you do with the Son of God? That's the most important question that you can answer. Your life depends on it. Let's pray.